Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Cam Anderson, author of The Faithful Artist, A Vision for Evangelicalism and the Arts. Cam holds a Master's of Fine Arts degree, which is the highest degree in the field, from Cranbrook Academy of Art. He works as an artist, among other things, and is the past president of SIVA, Christians in the Visual Arts. I know of no one better to help us think about majoring in the arts than Cam. So Cam, welcome to the show. Stan, it's so good to be here with you today. It's good to be with you as well. We've got a long and really good history together, so it's nice to reconnect. Yeah, it certainly is. You're one of the people who really got me interested in the arts because you just have a level of understanding and a way of explaining things that uh, I've always wondered about that were really helpful. So I wanted to have you on the show to talk about the arts, how we as Christians who are helping our children head off to college and maybe who want to study the arts should think about that, or even students themselves who might want to study in the arts might be thinking about that as Christians. So let me just start at the beginning. How did you get interested in the first place in the arts? I have wondered for a long time where I gained some sense of calling to the arts. Uh, I didn't grow up in an artistic family necessarily, Hmm. though my parents loved music and made sure that all six of their kids had music lessons and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a very rural community, a very rural church around farmers and loggers and those kind of folks. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't obvious that I would enter into the arts, but I know early on, I realized that I had a kind of creative mind and I just loved making things. Mm. Uh, I took pleasure in making. So then by the time you know, we moved into a more suburban community, we actually had art classes and I enjoyed art classes in high school. By the time I was getting ready to go off to college, uh, you'll appreciate this, Stan. I, I started out as a philosophy major. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I still actually like philosophy. I know you do. Uh, but I also had art classes. And um, as I started thinking about how do I want to spend the next four years, I realized I, I probably wanted to spend more time in the art studio and maybe slightly less time um, reading Kant or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Though I came to discover much later that it would be good to know something about Kant if you're yeah. interested in the visual arts, right? Yeah. Which is all to say that I, I think that sense of calling to the art is just something that evolved. I was doing some writing recently, actually, on this very topic. And I realized it wasn't until my early 50s, stand that I actually began to introduce myself as an artist. Really? You know, you'd be on the plane like like, like we all are. We travel and, well, who are you and what do you do? And I really, it was in my 50s I first started to say, well, I'm an artist. And then mm. as I became a writer, I would say, I'm an artist and a writer. Mm-hmm. I, I, w- I was identifying at those things at that point as, as core to my being. At core, I'm an artist and a writer. Mm-hmm. Because I, as you know, I've spent most of my life leading in nonprofit organizations. Mm-hmm. A long evolution, yeah. Interesting. 
so interesting how God works in our lives in those ways. And sometimes it's not till 20, 30, 40 years we look back and see all the ways he was guiding us. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think, as I wrote about in my first book, The Faithful Artist, um, to be sure, one of the things I needed to work out is that in the church communities that I grew up in, Christian leadership was valued, preaching, teaching, those kinds of things. And I have those skills and gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the arts were really sidelined, um, especially the visual arts. Mm. So it took a long time to kind of work my way through all that and, and see the idea of being a sculptor, a painter, a printmaker, a photographer, some of those things as very as legitimate callings in, in the in God's bigger scheme in the world. Mm. Now I want to drill into that and ask why, but first, could you back up and give us a taxonomy of the arts? You just mentioned a few. How how would you break the field down? Yeah, yeah. It's a big question and it's a good one. Um, so my own training in the visual arts, I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts, Master of Fine Arts in the visual arts, um, in painting and drawing in particular. But if you were to think about the visual arts more broadly, you would think about sculpture and painting, uh, printmaking, photography, architecture, some of the applied fields like metal, smith, fiber, ceramics, and then you get into design, 2D, 3D design, um, these days digital design. So that's the visual arts. But then, of course, you have all the other arts, right? So you have all the musical arts, and uh, you have the theater arts, and then you have uh, creative writing, and that goes everything from poetry to short stories to writing novels to writing screenplays. You have film. So there's that whole art world out there, and, and these things are all, they all are connected uh, more powerfully so these days in the digital world than than ever. So I have particular training in the visual arts in painting and drawing, but I really like the arts broadly <laughs> um, beyond the visual arts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really, really helpful. It's really helpful. So what, uh, what career opportunities are there for undergraduates who are studying any of these fields? I mean, there's so many career opportunities I, I, I know, but are there certain things people tend to end up in, in the arts or is it so specific to that area, that subdivision? Well, I think the big shift that's occurred in art departments is, you know, when I enrolled in college 50 years ago, the the focus was on studio practices, right? So you'd have mm-hmm. your drawing courses and your painting courses, and you might have a design course, or you might have a course in typography or something, but that was pre-digital age. Uh, these days, the bread and butter courses in most art departments are digital design. So mm. work on branding and on marketing and using digital tools. Mm-hmm. Um, and studio courses, the, those more hands-on activities are much harder to come by. And, and I mean, I think art departments really just need, they need to major in um, digital design to keep the doors open. Hmm. Because that's the clearest path, it seems, to somebody who's interested in the arts to come in, earn a degree, and hope to have a marketable job at the end that'll mm-hmm. pay some salary and benefits. Um and then there are related fields of photography and cinematography and all these things. So, so sure, 
there are jobs for those kinds of paying jobs for that kind of work. <laughs> There's not probably a paying job for a studio painter mm-hmm. for the most part. Folks who go into that are more as a stepping stone to some graduate work in the field and teaching perhaps, or some other area of art that they have a foundation then in. Yeah, that that's right. I, I, I think because in the university, the humanities and the arts generally are on the decline mm-hmm. in terms of enrollment and faculty decreasing, uh, you know, there are fewer. It, yeah, it might have been when I did my BFA and MFA and this kind of school that I went to, Cranbrook Academy of Art, you know, most of my colleagues, we mostly would have graduated and gone into faculty positions. Um, but mm. those positions mostly don't exist in full-time status a lot of adjunct Mm -hmm. but um, that job market's not there so there's got to be other career options if you're hoping to make your living and pursuing the arts yeah Mm -hmm. so how if at all does an undergraduate degree in the arts position one to work in another field outside of the arts well in fact I, i i think the arts can be very fruitful just in terms of thinking about the larger work world, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the writer who wrote a book. I think the last name was Pink, but he wrote a book in which he stated that the MFA was a new MBA. Um, hmm. And that's maybe a decade or more old. But what he was suggesting is that, you know, there are so many MBAs and people who have management skills and business practices, but what he was saying is that our industries will always need creative people. <laughs> we need people coming in with fresh ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's the MFA kind of person with the creative mind that brings the creative ideas and creative propositions, e- even into marketplace-oriented um, industries. So um, I think that the art student who learns to think creatively and critically learns to be attentive can gain some real marketable skills, but but I don't think it's a straight line often from, wow, I just spent, you know, four years learning how to paint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that equals, you know, a particular kind of job or career. I don't think that it, it's obvious. Um, right. You'd have to be pretty good at marketing yourself, it seems to me. You really would. And um, I think that, Stan, one of the things that my artist friends who are successful in the field and by that, I mean, actually make at least some part of their living selling artwork will tell you that if you only have a romantic idea about being an artist, you're going to be in trouble, right? Because you probably need to spend half of your time thinking about marketing and the business side of art. Mm. So that's going to be building websites and building networks and learning about the business of art. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. That's helpful. Well, you've answered the question I have been asking everyone else in this series on the different areas of study, but I'm going to ask you anyway, in case there's something else you want to add. Yeah. Uh, What character traits or qualities are good indicators that somebody might flourish in the arts and they ought to go off and study it? Yeah, that's a good question. I grew up in a home where if we had a visiting pastor on Sunday morning or missionary or something like that um, in our church, it's very likely they came over to our house for Sunday dinner. Mm. <laughs> and so as a high school kid, I got to 
talked to a lot of interesting people, especially from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And I remember Norman Geisler at one point was was a visiting pastor in our church. So this mm. is a long time ago. Mm. So in an afternoon conversation with him, I asked him, well, you know, how would I know if I should go into ministry and be a pastor? And uh, Norm said to me, well, you would know if that's the only thing you could imagine ever doing. If you had no imagination for anything else, you could only imagine yourself being a pastor or a minister. Then you should do that. Hmm. I kind of like the way that carries over into other careers. Mm -hmm. and, and I and, and I think, you know, the person who said, I can only imagine myself being an artist. Well, maybe they should broaden that a bit, but that might be an indicator that it should make that investment of time and money, at least to consider it. Mm, yeah, just that real passion. They, 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 right. They bleed it. Yeah, back to that idea of it being core. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's the high school freshman and she's been writing poetry and reading poets and just can't imagine a life without poetry. Mm. That at least could be an indicator that she should think about creative writing. Mm-hmm. I think if you don't have that passion, though, it's ill-advised to go into the arts. I think that the person who's just trying to sort of find themselves or wants to kind of dabble a little bit, I think decades ago that was probably fine. But these days, I think the cost of education is so significant that I think it has to be a core passion or love. Mm -hmm. I would discourage a student from going to school if they didn't have that. Mm -hmm. And you see that happen a lot, uh, sort of the romanticism of the arts, and I'm going to go find myself and express my creative inner being. And Oh, sure. I mean, I think that's what the arts are all set up to do, right? I mean, I think that, I mean, I'm a romantic at core, Stan, so I, I'm not being critical of my fellow romantics. Yeah. But over time, you know, it's been my good fortune to know people in the arts who have been successful. You know, they publish books and publish novels and they've recorded music and they have a regular schedule of exhibits and those kinds of things. And what we will all mostly tell you is that inspiration's a part of that, to mm -hmm. be sure. But most of what the arts are about is, is showing up and doing the work every day. Mm -hmm. So I think when you're young, uh, the emphasis on the inspiration and the, the sort of lovely idea of being an artist, because we've seen other artists and we think, boy, I'd like to have that kind of life, I think. But the long-termers, the people who I think actually are making progress would say, you know, it's a little bit of inspiration, a lot of perspiration. Mm -hmm. Like it's about actually having habits. If you're going to write, then you need to write every day, or mm -hmm. if you're going to Make studio art, you need to have regular time in the studio. Give us a real-life example. What does that look like for yeah. you to put the time in, the perspiration in your area of art? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. It, it, it's different for me as a visual artist than it is as a writer. So okay. as a writer, I'm an early riser, and so I log in at least an hour a day of writing. When I travel, I've always got a few sheets of paper of something I'm working on that needs to be edited, but I just about write every day. And then I look forward to times where I have bigger chunks of time, um, either reading or writing or researching, but I'm working on writing projects all the time. 
my studio art's a little bit different. It tends to ebb and flow around whether I have an exhibit. So right before we started this call, I mentioned to you that I've got an opening of a new exhibit of work this evening here in, in Madison, Wisconsin. And, yeah, congratulations. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. So I, I actually wrote the proposal for this show pre-COVID. It was about three and a half years ago, hmm. and then everything closed down for a couple of years ruminated on the idea with drawing sketches but it was really only a couple months before the show that I kind of set up my studio and began to work in earnest so I I, I work a little more in fits and starts around that it's more by project mm. um, okay and I I needed a lot of time close together because unlike writing for me actually making things in the studio requires a certain kind of flow and I, I need to have enough contact time with the materials in the space to kind of get moving. Mm, mm -hmm. I can see that. Yeah. So there's something different about it. But I mean, again, I have artist friends in the visual arts who blog in studio time every day, even if the place they make their money and their profession, their their primary vocation takes them someplace else. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, now let's go back to the freshman who's, really interested in the arts and uh she's thinking i need to do something here i can't not do this right but she's in a church like yours you mentioned growing up mm -hmm. that didn't encourage that or embrace that why do you think that's so often the case yeah well i i mentioned the i've had the privilege of publishing a couple of books but the one where i really dove into this topic is called the faithful artist and the heart and soul of the book was to answer that very question, Stan. I said, so like, what are the problems that I'm encountering as someone who has a genuine desire to be a follower of Jesus, but also loves the arts and loves the visual arts and not just in the Christian context. So not just making art for the church, which by the way, I think is important, but I wasn't an icon writer or painter and I wasn't making objects for to enhance worship. So not just subject matters that have to do with, say, biblical stories or, right, or, right. or themes. Right, yeah, not okay. paintings okay. of resurrection, crucifixion, mm -hmm. you know, the, those it. kinds of things. Um, at least in the more conservative Protestant church that I was raised in, um, there, there was just an ongoing worry about worldliness. Mm. And, I, and I think the sense was, and it was half right, but the sense was that, well, People in the arts are just secular people. They're not God-following, God-believing people. They lead certain kinds of lives. They're coloring outside the lines all the time. Uh, they don't seem to be very moral people, at least according to biblical kind of standards. And so the worry is, well, if I go into the arts, then I'm going to become one of those kinds of people out that that I can't actually keep faith and art together in my mind and heart. I I have to make a decision. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna, you know, meet this. Yeah. I'm gonna come to this fork in the road, and I'm gonna have to decide. Well, if I'm gonna follow Jesus, I'm gonna go one way, and if I'm gonna pursue the arts, I'm gonna go the other way. But I can't have both. Mm -hmm. uh, which it took me a long time to realize that it was a false dichotomy being presented to me. Mm -hmm. Part of it is because I didn't know the history of art. And I didn't realize that there had been faithful Christians in the arts uh, operating out of a deep 
spiritual core all along and and saw the arts as their calling and of course mm-hmm. once you kind of flag that false dichotomy and, and then it opens up the world and you realize whoa like vincent van gogh was a man who struggled but he was a deeply committed christian man he started out doing christian ministry as an evangelist mm-hmm. or rembrandt was devout or Albrecht Durer or and, and on and on and on you began to realize mm. but part of the reason we didn't know these things is when we were in our art history classes in college we, that part of the story wasn't being told mm. sounds so much like the history of science well how many of the disciplines right mm. uh, mm-hmm. so part of what's gotten me excited about writing and doing scholarship in the arts was to uncover these wonderful stories yeah and realize no that actually all along there have been people of faith christians and people of other faiths who've seen the art they're working on and making and their journey with god to belong together so at this point in my life i i can't imagine not being a christian but i also can't imagine not being an artist and Mm -hmm. and those two things pose no conflict internally for me anymore i had to write a whole book to figure it out (laughs) So glad you did. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's actually, I, I'm joking, but uh, a little more seriously, I uh, actually writing that book became a, an exercise of healing for me and realizing, uh, naming the thing I just named, that this dichotomy I was feeling was something that others had forced on me, but it wasn't in God's world, didn't need to be real. They could be reconciled. Let's talk a little more about that. So as you realize this is not an either or right. and begin to live in the both and your faith and your passion for art, right? how did you find that was strengthening your faith? And how did you also find there were some challenges maybe you didn't anticipate by trying to live in that space between or, or, or combining the two? Yeah, well, maybe I'll start with the challenge a little bit because I've actually just been pondering it recently, Stan. As you know, I've spent, I've had the privilege of working in the nonprofit world most of my career with three different and I think important organizations along the way. And Mm -hmm. I don't have any regrets about that, but I've wondered recently what would have happened if I might have given myself more seriously to the arts? Like, what what if I'd made the visual arts and writing more central? uh, How might my life have been different? I don't think I have regrets about that, but, you know, I've wondered about that. Mm. But when I when I realized that art and faith not only could belong together, but needed to belong together, that really opened up some thinking for me. So, for example, it helped me be more attentive to the visual phenomena in the world. And I realized that looking more carefully, seeing more carefully, studying more carefully increased my affection for the world, and in particular, the created order, the the world that God has made, which then leads to prayer and to worship, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this whole cycle of attentiveness and affection and prayer and worship. And And let me give you an example. I was with you once. We're walking down a hallway somewhere (laughs) and there was a painting on the wall. I think it was, it was a landscape Yeah. and it just caught my eye. I don't know why, but I stopped you and I said, tell me what you see. Right. Cause I, I see, I see a field and some trees and whatnot, Uh, Right. but I know you see more than I see. Right. And I want to know what you see. And you took about 20 minutes to explain things you saw that when you pointed them out, I saw this 
this beauty and splendor, the way the the light was filtering through the scene, the use of colors, the perspective being used, all of those dimensions that I just didn't see because I don't have the training, uh-huh. but you were able to sort of unpack it for me and explain, here's why the artist would have done this. And here's the way that in your view helped us glory in or revel in God's glorious creation. Uh-huh. Right. And you, you live every day like that. I mean, that was a little moment for me. And I tried to sort of be more thoughtful, but, but I can see that is that the more you understand that, the more you just live day to day in that sense of awe of God's grandeur and creation, because you see things that the rest of us don't see. It, it's true. I, I don't think that makes artists special. It's just a particular kind of attention that yeah. we pay yeah. and a kind of particular kind of work we do. So I would just say, you know, that I've learned to become a very excellent visual reader. Mm-hmm. I read the visual world continually. Well, what am I looking at? What's going on here? What does it mean? It's such a good way to put it. But it's interesting that when you learn to read well in that space, you actually become a better reader of texts and a better reader of relationships and of people because oh. it's about slowing down and, and being attentive and saying, what's actually going on here right now? Oh. Thank you for that illustration. Yeah, why why has this painting captured my attention a little bit? What what are the plastic qualities of what's going on here? And then of course, one of the amazing things that can happen sometimes you can feel like maybe I'm actually starting to see this piece of art the way the original artist imagined it when he or she painted it, right? Hmm. So I know enough about painting that because that's my area of training, Stan, is I, when I look at paintings, I often understand how that painter made that painting, Mm -hmm. you know, which color went down first and, and how that color was mixed on a palette. And is it a wash, a glaze, or is it thick impasto and what kind of brushes? And so I, (laughs) wow, I, I, I understand that by looking at a painting. Yeah. It's, it's, I have intuition about it. So that's a pleasure. Yeah. Well, and you also just put something else together for me is you, you, you are such a good leader. I had the privilege for listeners to serve under Cam for a number of years, but you're such a good leader because you were able to read situations, people, opportunities, all those. You just had a sense of what's going on. And I, I think that ties in here. You just had learned to read the world somewhat due to your training in art. You know, you might be right. Um, I mean, thank you for the compliment. I, I, I think probably time in the arts does build up muscle in the area of intuition. Mm, right? I, mm-hmm. I think our intuitive senses can be honed, I think, very carefully. But, you know, then we've got some really flat side stand, which you probably experienced with me, too. So, like, data doesn't inspire me, right? Mm-hmm. I understand how to read a financial spreadsheet. I use Excel files and software, all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't generate a lot inside me, the, the, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So with the strengths, I think, come weaknesses, right? So I I just always needed to have good people around me who, like my colleague here, uh, Dan Johnson, who set up technology for me today, right? The arts don't help you in, in every respect, right? You, you still need the community. Sure. But I think, I think that artists who also want to function as leaders can Bring something to the program and to the vision. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I'd ask you about how, when you began to merge these two, your passion for Christ and your love of art together, you had faced opportunities and challenges. You've talked about opportunities um, and, and some challenges. Anything else you'd want to say about that for the listeners that might be helpful? Yeah, I think without telling too much of the story, mostly just for time's sake, but early in my 50s, I hit a little bit of a crisis point and um, really benefited a lot from meeting with a psychotherapist for three sessions, a friend of mine, and led us into some conversation. And just to kind of keep it simple, I suppose a question I was asking is, well, where's God right now in my life? Hmm. It wasn't a doubt about, is God real, or do I believe, or it was a more experiential kind of question. But mm-hmm. And it was in the second session with this friend, um, as she led me into some thinking that I realized that God was, let me put it this way, waiting at home for me in my garage. <laughs> well, <laughs> why in my garage? Well, because that's where my studio is. Ah. And not to spiritualize the studio experience, but I would not always, but sometimes in the studio experience a sense of calm and of centeredness and flow where I kind of lost a sense of time and move into that core space of who I really am. But God is present in that space, not absent for me. Mm-hmm. And I was in the process right then of working on a body of work, but I wasn't realizing that I was having a spiritual experience there as well. Mm. Now, I don't think that just being in the arts leads one automatically to God, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I have a whole set of things that I understand about God because I am a Bible-believing Christian and have learned to read the scriptures as well. So, right. But actually, it was those two things coming together, not warring with each other. That that was the point. Sure. Because after all, Stan, well, you know, what is the first thing that we learn about God if we open the scriptures and read in Genesis 1? God's the creator. Mm-hmm. Before we learn about the God of love or the God of grace or mercy or his sovereignty or his providence, all these other things we learn about God, the first and core thing we learn about God is that He's a maker. Mm -hmm. And we learn just a few verses after that, that we're made in his image. Oh, wait, God's a maker. I bear his image. I must be a maker as well, right? Mm -hmm. So in the big biblical narrative, that to me is a starting point. Sure. And in that sense, we're all all artists. We are. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes people talk about that as if there's a separate class of say creatives Mm. creatives isn't the word i I don't like the word creatives very much i'd say well god's a maker he made all of us in his image we're makers we're all creatives Mm -hmm. well and i've had the privilege in my career working with people from across the professions and I'm always amazed at how creative folks are in ways I can never think of being creative, even at working with spreadsheets and numbers, which isn't my forte either. Oh, oh, absolutely. But there's an amazing creativity there to be able to, to, to design and to implement and to understand. And, and you pick the profession there. There's a huge amount of creativity, again, as an image bearer of God to express in those fields. Yeah, that's right. But I think in the arts, maybe it's just a little more, it's the end, not the means, maybe, right? 
Yeah, I think so. It's on some continuum, at least, right? So we write about, think about making art for art's sake, Mm. which is a potentially complicated idea. But the way I would unpack it is that we have in us a desire for transcendence. We long for transcendence. And I think beauty is a key access point to that idea of transcendence. Mm -hmm. I mean, beauty, goodness, and truth, transcendentals all contribute to that. But I think that in terms of access to transcendence, I I think beauty is maybe sitting out in front on that. Mm. And I I think all the arts help us to that. I I think music is the easiest access point to beauty, by the way. Interesting. That was certainly something the reformer Martin Luther believed. He he thought that music was the thing that could take us most quickly into the presence of God. Hmm. But, you know, I think poetry does that. I think a good story does that. Mm -hmm. I I just can't imagine living in the world in a world where there was no beauty. (laughs) Right. I've often thought about how God could have simply created a black and white world and it would have been functionally equivalent. Right. In some ways, in a lot of ways, in terms of getting food and what have you, and he chose to create this splendor that you see in a sunset, right? (laughs) No, it's absolutely right. I've done a lot of teaching on Genesis 1 through 3, and eventually I hope to have a a big book about it, actually, Stan. um, The working title is An Artist Reads Genesis 1 through 3. I have a few hundred pages put together on that. Nice. Well, just as an example, like, why didn't God just create one all-purpose berry, right? Like mm. a berry we could make juice and jam from and pies and cakes. And why not just one? Sure. But why? Strawberries, raspberries, blueberries, blackberries. It just flows from the creative mind of God. Like, well, why would I want to make yeah. just one when I yeah. could make hundreds? That's right. Hey, I could, and I could do this. And oh, oh yeah, I could do this. <laughs> yeah. And now I can create some human being, and that human being might spend their their whole lives in some university somewhere just studying berries, and they'll live and die and feel like they hardly started to wrap their mind around it. Yeah, yeah. I love that picture, right? That is a great picture. Of God, the maker, and then we we become the students of his creation. Mm -hmm. So I think when the arts actually are at their best, that's one of the things that's going on. Mm. I think when they're at their best, and we probably need artists, we at least need a few artists in our communities to help us with that. That's probably part of our calling. And you say in communities, including and maybe especially you mean our Christian communities. I think so, yeah. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm, think so. mm -hmm, Yeah. I'll go back to the transcendentals again, right? Goodness, beauty, truth. We need people to show us a way to the truth, to separate truth from falsehood. As a philosopher, I think you probably care about that, right, Stan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the one of the three that I'm probably most passionate about. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh-huh. But we also need people to um, <clears throat> instruct us on what it means to be good. Because mm-hmm. you could have all your arguments right about what's true and false and still not be a very good person. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't want that world. Right. But I think the truly lovely world is a place where we value the truth, we desire to lead good lives, and we celebrate beauty. Right, Um, yeah. That's the world I want to live in. Yeah. I think artists have something to contribute to that. Absolutely. We will return to the show in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. 
If you are like most of our listeners, you are concerned about the ideas being promoted in our universities today. We too often hear about what is false and even harmful being promoted as true. Christian professors are called to stand up for what is true, good, and just, and teach their students to do the same. Help equip Christian professors to do so at www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this College Faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to College Faith. So let's talk about contemporary realities. And I know that any of these questions are so broad and there's so many nuances in the different areas in the arts, but just generally, do you have any thoughts on where you see the mainstream ideas in the arts being consistent with a Christian worldview where there's some overlap, some encouraging things you're seeing in the conversation or the production of art these days? Yeah, you're, you're right. We're fielding a very large question here, a big topic, but, um, There are a lot of different things happening in art schools and art academies these days. So at a place like UW-Madison, I work at Upper House, and right across the street from my office is the Chazen Art Museum and and the the School of Art. Mm -hmm. For many artists and in many art programs these days, art has become primarily political. So art has been seen as a tool to communicate a particular kind of social or political agenda. And often, almost probably without exception, to the left of center, not to the right. Hmm. I think that's really unfortunate. I I think art has, throughout history, held political meaning and had held political functions. So I'm not at all one who thinks, you know, we should art should never be political. I think it necessarily needs to be. But a conversation that's not happening very often in the art world, in the fine arts, is a conversation about beauty and transcendence. Mm. And I think that's unfortunate. I remember a number of years ago, I was taking a graduate-level art history course here at UW, and it was on a selection of Renaissance artists, Italian Renaissance artists, and we were having a conversation about Christian art. And the class began to realize that I was the one person in the room who actually had Christian beliefs. It turns out I was the only person in the room that actually knew anything about Christian theology or Christian doctrine as well. So we'd be looking at paintings about the resurrection, say, or the Last Supper, and the class would talk about painting technique and the meaning of this painting and its social period and, you know, the lives of the patrons and where these work hung in situ and all that kind of stuff. But we would never talk about the Christian message Hmm. because I was in a room full of people who didn't know it. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me, you know, halfway into that class that and I enjoyed my classmates and our instructor was, she was really fine. It was a very worthwhile class, but I had this sense as we are going into this class, Stan, more and more, 
that actually God was being robbed of his glory in that classroom. Mm. Because these paintings were about certain biblical narratives, certain biblical truths. And except for me, we weren't able even to talk about, we weren't really talking about the subject of these paintings. We were talking all around that. And I had this sense that, yeah, that actually God was being robbed of his glory, not because we were meaning to exactly. It's just the ignorance. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, um, I think one of the places that beauty shows up a lot these days is in another area of the visual arts, which is the crafts. Define that for me. Like I think in ceramics and in furniture making and jewelry making. And mm, okay. sometimes the art world disparages those things because they say, well, they have a utility. A table is a thing we use, so right. it's not really pure. It, ah. We're actually going to put dishes on it and placemats and flatware and these and we're, we're going to eat food and these tables have a function a utility and so they're not pure but there's a real revival of the crafts in this country and so whether you're blowing glass or making stained glass or throwing pots or weaving things on a loom uh, there's a lot of lovely things being made hmm. they're, they're quite beautiful and very evident of handwork the handwork of artisans who are making them so there's kind of a division in the art world along these lines mm. so back to your earlier point i think it might be a surprise to some of our listeners that one could study art and not be talking about beauty but that's really helpful to make that distinction and you might be studying periods of christian art and not actually talk about the story that animates it mm -hmm. right you could go visit an amazing cathedral, but if you don't have a guide, you might not understand the theological program that exists throughout that cathedral yeah. and, and why one painting's here and the biblical text that they're interpreting, right? So you, you, you could be a tourist and go through that and, and have some sense of awe and wonder about it, but not see that there, originally there was a creation to revelation story, a program there. Yeah. So from experiences you've had when you've been in these situations in classes or in other contexts, what advice would you have for students who find themselves in classes or programs of study that are more politically motivated in terms of the approach to art and, and in other ways unengaged from the broader biblical story? Right. I have multi-level answers on that. <laughs> and it has a lot to do with the personal kind of constitution of the individual student, right? So mm -hmm. I suppose for myself, I felt pretty equipped to go to school in a secular environment, both for undergrad and graduate school. I was pretty convinced of my Christian commitment. Um, I was very interested in what was happening in those places and interested in learning about the views other people held, but didn't feel threatened by hearing things that I didn't personally believe. I was looking forward to the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. And so I didn't mind being known as a Christian. In fact, I was sort of always glad when people realized I was. So we, we that matter was settled. So they would just know I was going to bring a kind of Christian perspective to things. Mm -hmm. But then that became kind of an adventure for me because I, I realized if I'm going to be a Christian here, I first thing I need to do is make good art. <laughs> mm. Like, mm -hmm. like my words don't mean anything here. I, I, I need to be in the studio making art and 
That was job number one. Mm -hmm. And then I tried to be attentive and a good listener and a friend. And so those were exciting times. But but I could imagine, and I've seen it, where someone could be in an environment where their faith really wasn't respected at all, where they were actually um, became the object of derision. It wasn't safe for them. I could imagine, and I know there are art school environments that are toxic, and it might not be a place someone should stay. It might be worth leaving. It has a lot to do with kind of what measure of strength and confidence do you bring into a place? Do you have people who are supporting you and mentoring you? But I think if places like that turn out not to be safe, it it may not be a good place to be. So it's back to the adage, know thyself, right? It it really is, Stan. And if you come out of a community and you draw strength from that community and you have a place to process what's going on, um, I mean, it could just be fine. I was thinking about this in, in more practical terms, too. Like if a junior in high school said, hey, Cam, I'm thinking about going to art school. What's your advice? Or, mm-hmm. or a parent, right? And I think that the world has changed a fair bit. When I went off to study art, again, I'm an older person now, 50 years ago. College wasn't that expensive. There wasn't so much emphasis on career preparation. It was more about going and receiving an education, a kind of full-orbed education, learning to think and read. And Mm -hmm. so the risk of being an art major wasn't so great. It was much lower. Yeah, And I think we didn't so much worry um, in that post-war period about, well, well, I'm going to go spend a couple hundred thousand dollars and I'm going to go in debt. What am I going to do then? Mm-hmm. I'll never earn it back as a painter, right? So it's, we're, we're we're in a kind of different moment. So I I think that, as we were saying earlier, if you you have core passions around the art, you can't imagine doing anything else. That might suggest you should go off and do it. But then I think choose your schools very carefully. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Well, campus visits are going to be important, and I would, I'd spend some time going online and reading about the faculty and who they are, and looking at the kind of art they make. You can, it's all available to you. Mm. What what kind of work do they do? Uh, you know, you, you could find out right away if you're heading into a department, Christian college, secular college that is just only about politics. I think you could find that out right away. Okay, you, you might want to think twice about that. What are the facilities like? You're going to spend a lot of time and money in a place. Are, are there studios where you can work? Is the school well-situated to give you a good experience, just an experience of making? Are you going to be able to learn basic skills, or are you only going to learn about theory? So I feel suspicious about art departments where, well, I hope a student would say, if I go to this school Am I going to actually learn to draw? (laughs) (laughs) I'm really intrigued by some of the computer design departments that require students for the first semester, mostly to take pencil and paper out and draw their ideas before they enter into the digital world, Mm. to express themselves in drawing first before they take on all those powerful design tools. Um, There's no right way on this, but but I think that these days, if I was a student about to spend a lot of time and money or or a parent, I'd really look at programs carefully. 
And then I think it'd be interesting to ask department chairs and faculty, what do your graduates do after they leave here? Hmm. What jobs, what, what actual jobs have they got? Mm-hmm. And do you help your students think about how they're going to take this academic degree and enter into the job market? And yeah. some departments are really thinking about this and others not. What I would really hope an art student, a poet, musician, what I'd really hope they wouldn't do is either find themselves in a very toxic environment that is just continually hostile to their faith or end up in a situation where they make a huge financial investment and leave college with lots of debt. Mm-hmm. I think it's one thing, you know, for a law student to borrow money, leave law school with a law degree and, or you know, a medical degree or and say, well, I'm going to make this up in my professional life. Mm-hmm. But we artists are way more vulnerable than mm-hmm. that. Yes, as are we philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And the humanities Stan, in general. I know. Which is the least practical career? <laughs> and you, you becoming a philosopher and me becoming an artist. <laughs> so, hey, I want to ask you about another book you came out with recently. You co-authored God in the Modern Wing. Right. And this ties into some things we've been talking about. Yeah. But uh, many people detest modern and contemporary art right as perverse or distasteful or at best right. confusing and perplexing <laughs> yeah exactly right what advice do you have for christian students who are in departments that inevitably will engage modern and contemporary art right. to engage with those provocative movements in the art world these days yeah yeah well it was a great privilege to co-edit that book with uh my good friend, Walter Hansen, who is a retired biblical scholar, taught at Fuller Theological Seminary for part of his life. So maybe quickly the story of how that book came about, and then maybe a couple of comments on what we all learned together. Mm. At the time, uh, Walter and his wife, Tarlene, were attending Fourth Presbyterian Church downtown in the Loop of Chicago. And the story Walter would tell, and told to me is that, you know, Darlene and I worship here on Sunday morning and in the preaching of the word and the sacraments and the songs and the prayers, we often feel like we encounter God. But he'd say, Cam, you know, often we walk a mile south in our Michigan Avenue and have lunch at the Art Institute of Chicago and go into the modern wing. And sometimes I feel like I'm encountering God there too. Hmm. Oh, okay. So faith art, right? And Darlene is a painter herself, and um, they're art collectors and great supporters of the arts. So he said, well, what if we had an adult elective class at my church on four Sundays in November? This was some years ago. And we have four artists or art historians or theologians come in and talk about one of the important modern artists or important modern art in in the modern wing of the Art Institute of Chicago. So uh, we did that for a year and it, it was quite successful. So we did it for three years, but so we ended up having people talk about Mark Chagall and his white crucifix or Andy Warhol's uh, serigraphy series um, on The Last Supper. And we just went through about nine or 10 very important modern artists uh, over the course of three years. The classes were well-received, and 
one thing led to the next, and we had the opportunity with University Press to turn this into a book, right? So God in the Modern Wing, viewing art with the eyes of faith or through the eyes of faith. But of course, the thing that we learned was a little bit about what I was saying before is that a lot of us who went into art school only heard half of the story. Mm. So we'd look at a Mark Rothko painting, but we didn't learn about his spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. Or we didn't learn about Andy Warhol and the fact that he grew up in in a Catholic home and often went to Mass, though he didn't feel like he should take the sacrament or the Eucharist because he wasn't worthy of it. We just didn't know these other parts of the stories of these individuals. Or Mark Chagall, who is a, a Jewish man, but loved the biblical story and couldn't stop painting it and thinking about it. I'm oversimplifying here. But what I think was happening for us in this lecture series is we are starting to tell the whole story about these artists and their art, mm. that their spiritual journey and questing and questioning and belief and evidences of transcendence in, in this modern art. So one of the lovely things we did each fall semester, on one of those Sundays after class, we would go down to the Art Institute, have lunch, and then a number of us with any of the parishioners who wanted to come along, we just spend the afternoon walking around and looking at the art and talking about it. 20, 30 class members would be there. But because the people who were teaching the class were also art historians and artists and experts, other people in the museum would start hanging around with us too because, oh, who's this expert who's talking about yeah, this art, yeah. right? It, it was really fun. <laughs> You know, that said, modern art still can be very difficult to understand. I think its meanings aren't always obvious. But like I was saying earlier, Stan, part of it is just uh, learning how to read the work, Mm. becoming more careful readers. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I just never fail to be impressed by if you slow a group of people down and just ask the question, what's going on in this painting and what's drawing your attention to it? The, the way that the conversations evolve, it, it's not much different than reading a difficult poem or, frankly, Stan, reading some difficult biblical passage. Mm-hmm. Did you know that parts of the Bible aren't that easy to understand, Stan? Really? <laughs> yeah, I'll that's say what it so. <laughs> <laughs> but, right, some of our listeners will, if they've been reading the Bible for a long time, over many years, will say, what you and I would say, we're continually surprised by the new things that we see when we read a, a psalm. I was just reading a psalm this morning that is a favorite psalm. And I saw something again this morning that I'd never noticed before. I thought, how can that be? Mm-hmm. How many times have I read this? Right. I think that if we approach difficult art as readers, and other, you know, kinds of cultural artifacts as readers, our understanding increases and we start to work our way down through the layers of meaning, actually. And it's a very satisfying experience. Mm-hmm. I don't think all art offers that, by the way. I don't think that those deeper levels exist in all art. And that's part of the training, right, is to be able to discern that. Right. Just like with literature or anything else. Yeah, yeah. And by the way... Someone might be recognized as a great poet, but I might read that poet and say, this does not connect for me. That's okay. (laughs) Sure. Someone might say, well, you know, Shakespeare was maybe 
the most important writer of plays in the history of the English language. Perhaps they're right. But I don't know. I guess you could go to a Shakespeare play and say, I don't really get it and actually don't really like it. I mm-hmm. I, I, think maybe that's okay. <laughs> well, that's probably true in every discipline, right? Certainly in mind. Well, I would think so, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we talked about a couple of books that are helpful that students might want to pick up and read. You're the faithful artist, as well as God in the Modern Wing. Are there any other important books you might want to suggest that students should know about, pick up, either read in or maybe read cover to cover? Yeah. Of the two that I did, I think that the faithful artist might be more helpful for someone just thinking about the artist's vocation. Okay. God in the Modern Wing might be helpful if students in a classroom and, you know, they need to write a paper on Andy Warhol or Mark Rothko or something, then they'll have a great essay that they can draw from with great footnotes and all that kind of stuff. Mm. One artist who's uh, and writer who's very popular kind of in the Christian world is Makoto Fujimura. Mm-hmm. Mako's written a, a great deal. Uh, it's my privilege to be a good friend of Mako's. In fact, I did a podcast with Mako here some time ago here at Upper House, Stan. So did you? Yeah, you could always link that into your your piece. I will. We had a long conversation about. I think it's his most recent book, still uh, Faith and Art, uh, where he talks about his own understanding of the artist's calling and vocation. Mm. I would recommend that book to a high school student or a beginning art student as uh, accessible but inspiring and then he's written um, before that he written a book called culture care what i appreciate about that is we talked a little bit about the politicization of the art world mm-hmm. and i wanted to make clear that i'm not against it but i think art's about more things than that okay that's one thing that art could be about But what I like about Mako's book, Culture Care, is he offers some thinking about what it means to be a studio artist who cares about the greater ecosystem of culture Mm. and what it is that the arts have to contribute to that ecosystem and the gift that beauty is to that, the gift of compassion is to that, uh, the gift of attentiveness. Mm -hmm. Mako is somebody that a lot of folks are, are reading, and I I think for good reason. So I, I, I would I would suggest that. Then, you know, there are other writers and, and some older works, but th- there's a really lovely book by Madeline Langle called Walking on Water, written in the 70s, that is just a real nice little set of essays to help artists think about their work and what the work of an artist is. Actually, the, the good news is that there's just Dozens and dozens of fine resources these days. When I started out in the 70s, there was a handful of books, about three or four, we could all name them. And these days, if you start reading people like Mako, or you start reading my things, and you start looking at footnotes, you'll be able to follow these threads and, and then, you know, and then go online and mm-hmm. just see that there's, there's just a rich, rich conversation about faith and art happening. And it's easily accessible. And I would say if you're a Christian student going off to art school, especially a secular art school, 
just start doing some research and the names will start popping up. And again, if you would, if you followed Mako or you did some poking around on my work, you'll just start to see all the podcasts and the writings and there's tremendous resource out there. So yeah, I was going to say, it's probably a lot more than just the books. It's the online conversations they can access as well. Right. Exactly. The podcasts and the exhibits of work and the mm-hmm. announcements about conferences. And Is there a Christian professional society these students could join? Or is there a website that tends to be a repository for a lot of these that link to other conversations? Where, where do students get started besides picking up your book or Mako's book and diving in? Until a few months ago, there was a great answer for that. The organization was called SIVA, Christians in the Visual Arts. You get a little history with them, don't you? I was the executive director of that organization for about a decade, right? And left that job about five years ago. But after 45 years, that organization just announced that it's closed. You're kidding me. No, it's gone out of business. Their board, uh, at least in terms of what they stated, felt like the organization had met its original objectives and charter and uh, decided to disband. So it does not exist any longer. That that would have been my best answer um, for a long, long while. There are all kinds of grassroots things out there. It would take a little searching, but there's the Brim Center for the Arts at Fuller Theological Seminary led by Shannon Ziegler, a good friend of mine. There's the Duke Initiative for Theology and the Arts at Duke University. Jeremy Begbie leads that. There's a place out in Seattle called Image Journal that is interested in the arts broadly from a Judeo-Christian point of view. The Rabbit Room Organization out of Nashville. Again, you start looking around, you'll find a lot of interesting regional opportunities and iteration. My my good friend Ned Bustard runs uh, Square Halo Press and has done a lot of beautiful books on the arts himself. Um, he's a printmaker. So there's a lot of resource. I, I think the, lo- the loss of SIVA going away is a, at one point, I think SIVA was kind of a central gathering point for all these pieces. So we don't have anything quite that dynamic at mm. this point. But there's some really good resources you mentioned. It's really helpful. We're still resource rich out there. And uh, mm-hmm. it would not take much searching for a undergraduate student to really start landing on resources that would help. And then that way the world changed because back in the 70s, 80s, even into the 90s, we, we didn't have this abundance of resources. So it's a great legacy. Mm-hmm. And my guess is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, if they are on a campus with a Christian study center, especially, or even right. in a campus ministry, they could probably ask their staff workers who could maybe point them to some helpful resources as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's right. By the way, if I have any campus ministry people listening in here, sometimes campus ministry people are pastors, you're a youth pastor, um, you're in that ministry side of the equation, and you wonder, well, how do we reach students in the arts? I have the best and most simple answer for you. Go look at their art. Mm. Take them out for coffee or if they're showing work someplace and say, I want to see your artwork. I want to read your poetry. I want to hear your music because that's the place that people in ministry miss almost all the time. So here we are 
writing poems and composing music and having exhibits and coffee shops and whatever. And the thing we want you to do first is come and see what we do. Yeah. Yeah. We listen to you preach every Sunday. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) There's a, there's a fun joke about this. A bunch of years ago, I had a show here at the time I was attending a large church in town and no less than four pastors from our church, you know, showed up at this opening and, and, I had a very engaged conversation with one of them about my work. And I said, I just appreciate your questions and your and your attention so much. I mean, thank you. Thanks for coming out to see my work. It just means a lot that you made an effort on a Friday night to come and spend a couple hours in this gallery space. Yeah. And then I said, after all, I listen to you every Sunday morning. <laughs> 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 right. But I think that I think we could make such great progress if, if ministry folk understood that, you know, when we make stuff and write stuff, we, we want it to be seen and heard. Mm-hmm. And that's the way right to our heart, actually, is to just take a little time. Absolutely. Really, really good word. Appreciate that. Sure. Well, Cam, as we wrap up, is there anything else you want to make sure we touch on for those who are interested in pursuing the arts? Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground and, you know, individual situations invite much more fine-tuned kind of conversations about this. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes we can struggle as artists even to say, well, you know, how do I define art's purpose and why is art important? And I think sometimes when people ask us that, we, we can feel like we're back on our heels a little bit, like it's a little hard to know quite how to defend it. Mm -hmm. But as I said earlier, imagine what a world without art and beauty would be like. Mm -hmm. It's kind of by looking at that negative in a way you can begin to understand it, right? Because we're sitting looking at each other, you know, on a Zoom call, and we both have shelves of books behind us. Every one of those book covers was designed by somebody. Mm -hmm. The bookshelves themselves were designed by something. The shirt we were wearing, somebody designed it, the chair we're sitting in, right? So we live in this world of things. And Every time we turn around, it was designed by somebody. Someone mm-hmm. had an idea, put a pencil to paper, made a mold, a pattern, a design, mm-hmm. and went into production. So we live in this world of made things. And it's the same thing when we go online or we listen to podcasts. Or I mean, every time we turn around, we're living in something that's been designed. Mm-hmm. And that's the world that the arts touch all the time. Mm-hmm. I find it very helpful to think about that interweave and then to say, and what if you took all the creative, inventive, imaginative people out of that, what would we be left with? Right. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine living in that world? No. <laughs> Not at all. Well said. We can do all that to the glory of God, too. Yeah. Right? Because as we said, first and foremost, he's the maker. Mm-hmm. And that's his invitation to us. So. Mm. That's a good word to end on. So, Cam, thanks for your following God's call into the arts and for all these years thinking so deeply and so theologically about it so that you really can now help us think about these things in ways that I know I haven't thought about before. And every time we talk about these things, I'm learning things. I just appreciate your ministry in that way and taking the time to come on the show. Thank you, Stan. It's good to be with you. And anytime I can nudge a philosopher towards the arts, I'm happy. 
Well, I am nudgeable, so please continue. <laughs> but way beyond that, grateful for the very long friendship that we've enjoyed thus far and will continue. So peace to you. Mutual. Thanks so much. All right. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.